is a Scrap Studio production and you are listening to Scraps Bioelectronic Medicines. A special series dedicated to informing, engaging and educating experts and non-experts on medicines that quite literally get on your nerves. By that we mean medicines that will be prescribed by a doctor implanted or informed to use during an outpatient visit all designed to modulate the parallel axis of control of human bodily functions one that we have historically and conveniently put aside in favor of molecular medicines but this area is experiencing a resurgence in understanding and eventually developing therapies targeting these nerves to help treat chronic disorders and this series is to inform you of what these bioelectronic medicines that quite literally get on your nerves are we are super thankful to all of you who have reached out to us to inform how engaging this series has been so thank you please keep it coming our linkedin page for the podcast has an ever growing list of members and now we are close to 600 members strong That's 600 of your like-minded peers, colleagues and friends who are engaged in the area of bioelectronic medicines research. Engage with us there. Tell us what you're happy about, what you liked or did not like, and give us suggestions for what we should cover in the future. This episode is pretty special. Remember in the first episode of the season titled What in the world is a bioelectronic medicine? We discussed five verticals in the area of bioelectronic medicines. They are, and I re-quote them here: a hammer looking for a nail, pacemaker-like devices, closed-loop neuromodulation, data and digital that employs artificial intelligence and machine learning. The fourth one was target practice using non-electrical modalities, and we discussed one of them called as intermittent theta burst stimulation. for depression in episode 2 of the series and the last one is novel therapies targeting new nerve targets in this episode we are going to take a deep dive into another modality that is clearly making its inroads into the field of bioelectronic medicines and already has gathered some remarkable clinical data that is being generated with this technology and yes it belongs to the vertical 4 which is target practice using non-electrical modalities and that's what we are going to talk about many of us would have heard of ultrasound as an imaging modality be it in pregnancy scans or cardiac echocardiography or abdominal ultrasound that is done in hospitals or as an outpatient but what if we told you that ultrasound is not just an imaging modality but also one that can be tuned to stimulate nerves the history of this area is not new ultrasound has been used for ablation in cardiac interventional procedures for arrhythmia treatment but modulating nerves selectively using ultrasound in a non destructive manner is new while we can talk about emerging results in a data driven fashion with all the intricate details of methods and data etc that is something that you can access and find out instead as we always do at scraps 
we are going to make the science accessible to you in a friendly manner as if you're sitting with us across the table and having a conversation. To do this on the ultrasound modulation of nerves, we have invited three sonic hedgehogs of the field. Dr. Hubert Lim, professor at University of Minnesota's Biomedical Engineering and Otolaryngology departments. Hubert was a guest in season one of our podcast where we discussed his involvement in developing a device treatment for tinnitus, that constant ringing in the ears that people, as they get older, experience. And Hubert explored bimodal stimulation for this disorder. We will post a link to that episode in the episode description if you want to go back and listen to it. Our second sonic hedgehog we have invited is a fantastic scientist, a chemical engineer and a professor at Caltech. Mikhail Shapiro and I have known each other for a long time in the field and I even have a picture of Mikhail next to a large wall mural at the inaugural Bioelectronics Summit in 2013. We were both young back then. Mikhail is not just a professor at Caltech, but also a Harvard Hughes investigator. Our third guest is Dr. Chris Pulio. Chris works at GE and has had a critical role in looking at ultrasound for commercial purposes and has been working in almost like an old school IBM Labs fashion at GE, seeding and developing new avenues for using ultrasound to modulate nerves. We called all of them and assembled them, grabbed our drinks and sat by the fire to discuss ultrasound. Let's join the conversation now. It's a, it's a pretty non-controversial topic, I think, uh, unless Hubert decides to go on something uh, on a tangent. <laughs> or, so or say th- some that's words. up to him. Say some words. Uh, um, yeah, that will have to be beeped, but that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and from my side, Hubert, I will stay well-behaved. I will not bring up the state of North kind of analogy <laughs> or, or, or any kind of banter on the football team. So we'll, we'll keep that to a minimum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We do have to revisit the Dugawakis, though. Oh, geez, yeah. I'm going to find a way. Yeah, we're going to have to take that down. They have a dance video of me in my lab, but luckily I have a face mask that only comes off when I do a flip. <laughs> my lab has a dance video. Do you really? Yeah. Oh. It's a very brief dance, and it was cho- the song was chosen by my students for this um, World Molecular Imaging Congress thing, and they chose work, 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 work. I don't know if you heard that uh, popular song for a while. I'm not doing it justice. But they did a whole dance. Up then, because then uh, I'm not the only one with the dance video up there. All right, definitely put up Mikhail's uh, dance video for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's important to show the world that scientists can actually do stuff that normally people don't associate them <laughs> doing. It's not about just work, right? So, which is which is the entire message of the whole thing here? Well, so. but I don't know if any of you have seen Kip Ludwig dance, and he knows I say this about him, by the way. <laughs> I have not. He. It's it's as if he is. Um, can Kip dance in the first place? <laughs> he, he can okay, dance. He can right. dance. But it, like, is it allowed? You mean he's actually <laughs> he's actually processing the moves in advance, and you can see it <laughs> happening in his head. Nice. It's very it's very planned. It's very engineer like. 
where every next move is is planned in sequence. It must be the Michigan tailgate dance. Oh, it is. It is. He's been at my house many times during the Michigan days because, as you know, my house was the go-to place for the tail for the tailgating and football games. So I've seen many of his dances. You haven't seen all of them, I promise you. <laughs> I think that's any engineer dance, though. I mean, I went to I, I went to engineering school for undergrad, so I mean, there there was no good. <laughs> there was no good. Let's face it; most people are not good dancers. Just regardless of whether they're engineers or not. So um, I think we talked about this one kind of being um, there's more than one way to skin a cat and there's more than one way to excite a nerve. And you guys have kind of dialed in on ultrasound. and But you have a, a fundamental, maybe a lack in, of confidence in your selection of this. I mean, when I asked you before what where all the skepticism regarding ultrasound in this field is coming from. And I think you guys were the first to volunteer that, that you were the biggest skeptics. So how, how did you, how did you come up with this as a scheme and why are you still pursuing it? I, I think when you say skeptics, probably my, my name comes up <laughs> in there and, and I don't want to put um, Chris and, and, and Mikel in my bucket as well fully um, uh, they are both getting great results uh, in different scenarios. Um, but, but I think, you know, I'll start it off just to say um, I'm not so much a skeptic of the approach as I am just that I feel that there has to be more mechanistic data that comes out. And um, there's uh, nuggets of really great results, right? Um, but the consistency and repeatability of those results and the mechanistic aspects of those results um, have not been as to the high caliber that a lot of us scientists would would appreciate. And so that's, I think, where the discussion, I think uh, people have thought of me as not believing in it. I do believe in it. It just, I, I'm waiting to get more data around it that I can really, you know, pu push my support behind it. Um, and it depends on what we're talking about, nerves uh, versus cellular modulation versus, you know, neural terminals or dendritic synapses. You know, I, I think that all matters. And, and that's where it's going to, come into the, the subtle details of how it's working or not, right? So I'll, I'll pause there. I'll let Mikhail and Chris defend themselves. <laughs> well, maybe I can just chime in. The kind of the big picture is why are we interested in this at all? Um, and I think the reason is that um, ultrasound has this um, unique set of physical attributes that makes it potentially very powerful for modulating neural activity both centrally and peripherally. It's the only form of non-ionizing energy that can be focused at depth inside of tissues. And if you can couple ultrasound to the activation or inhibition of neural activity, it would have a lot of advantages over established electrical or magnetic um, techniques, which are very hard to focus non-invasively um, at depth. So I think kind of that basic um, set of properties about ultrasound is what sparked many, many people's interests, right? Not just the three of us um, on this podcast, but um, lots of people out there to, to try to make it work. And there's been enough um, data, even going back several decades, showing that it potentially does something to stimulate people to think, okay, maybe there's something here. So I think there's a, you know, a lot of questions still open, but it, it's definitely something from a scientific point of view that's worth investing in and, and pursuing. So what kind of focus depth are we talking about in comparison to other modalities? Um, <clears throat> well, you can, you can go 
deep, you know, the as deep as deep as the human body will go. I mean, you can go all the way throughout in. the entire body, right? Uh, what did you say, Chris? All the way. Yeah, in. you can go all you can go all the way. And so the trade-off is, um, you know, depending on the tissue and any kind of other barriers between you and the tissue, like the skull, for example, it, what frequencies you you need to use to get that penetration, which then sets your spatial resolution. So. You know, typically, you know, I say rule of thumb is you can get about millimeter uh, scale uh, focusing um, on the scale of, you know, five or more centimeters deep inside of the tissue. And if you if you're willing to go shallower, you can get even better focus. You can get down to the hundred micron uh, range. And I, I would just add, you know, kicked off with skepticism. But yeah, we're we're all scientists. Scientists slash engineers, we're all skeptical of every result that ever comes out from our lab first thing out, right? Where you get into a different definition of skepticism is trying to say that ultrasound is doing the same thing as electrical nerve stimulation and kind of putting those two buckets together where we're just trying to say it's different, right? Um, and the words we say, stimulation to us, doesn't mean making an action potential, right? It means stimulating with ultrasound to do neuromodulation. Neuromodulation doesn't necessarily mean we're having, we're actually stimulating and, and directly getting an action potential. It means we're modulating the nerve pathway. And they're just two different things. They're going to take different experiments to figure out what's going on. But the cool part is ultrasound is different. It allows us to go deeper. It allows us to target differently than electrical implants. And in the animal models and initial human studies, we're, we're seeing some, some unique results in disease models. I was just going to ask, though, quickly, does this mean that, that Juan Pablo and Imran are going to have to change the name of the Action Potential Ventures? I, I don't want to say aggressive statement statement now, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, uh, Hubert already tried to get DARPA to change the electrics program like five years ago, too. What was it? What was your name? I don't remember. <laughs> I forgot. Sonics. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember now. That's a good. I can't, I, I can't believe you remember that. I actually. Jeez. Yeah. You stood up in the middle of the meeting. I know. I know. But now I, I say things that I can't remember, which is always good because I have plausible <laughs> deniability. <laughs> so I, I think the three of you actually raised some really key questions, right? Uh, and first point being that that we need to look at the concept of neuromodulation through a prism that is potentially outside of the generation of action potential was point number one. Point number two is that ultrasound potentially offers the ability to focus down all the way from millimeters at really great depths of around five to six centimeters into the body, which is basically closer to the, the center of, of the chest, etc. Um, if one was used to applying an echocardiography at a cardiology practice, etc., through to kind of micron scale or 100 micron scale precision, as you described there, Mikhail. Let's actually go back. I want to take it one step before that and basically have all of you reflect uh, on that just based on the existing kind of clinical applications that are out there. Uh, so we know that ultrasound is used for imaging. It's used for abdominal ultrasound. It's also used for cranial kind of ultrasound, as well as most people would be very aware of going to a cardiologist office and having their heart function measured as well. Then there is also the what would be deemed as an ablative modality of ultrasound, which is the ones that most of the interventional cardiologists or potentially others in the area who are more interventional 
physicians would be more uh, up to speed with it, which is basically if something's causing a problem and cardiologists are great examples of this, they are used to slashing and burning the tissue. So the, instead of go- doing it with heat or with cryoenergy, they will probably use focus ultrasound to basically burn certain tissues in, in the heart. Uh, and that's how they treat arrhythmias and other things. Now, with those two boundary conditions, on one on a like non-invasive imaging, the other one is basically ablating tissue. Where does the concept of ultrasound and neuromodulation exist? And how exactly does ultrasound modulate nerves? And I think if I can possibly start with with maybe, uh, I think Chris, if I think you basically have a theory, and then we will actually go to Hubert, and I want to finally end up with Mikhail, who probably will give us more of the molecular potential correlates based on the study, et cetera, in that order. So Chris, Hubert, and, and Mikhail, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, well, I would just say first, what, what type of energy are we putting in to compare the ablative therapies that currently exist to what we're trying to do? And it's, it's yes, it's lower energy. We're, we're trying to stay far away from the ablation uh, type of parameters. Um, you could say that what the parameters we're using are under FDA limits, but they're also different than standard diagnostic imaging uh, pulse parameters. So while they may be under, you know, 720 milliwatts per centimeter squared, they're also a little bit different in terms of pulse lengths, um, the amount of time you might put in the same exact spot in the body. You know, you're not doing a scanning image, right? Um, although you could. So there, there, there's similarities and differences. So we're in this unique space which has always existed, but we're analyzing it a little more in depth. We're all, I believe, trying to put in mechanical type of pulses, although we may also try to look at whether thermal uh, effects are still there. Uh, And therefore we're seeing effects through mechanically activatable ion channels. And the cool part when we say neuromodulation is when we go in and we cut the nerve or block some of these mechanically activated ion channels in the animal models, the effect goes away. And that's kind of where we are, right? That's why we call it neuromodulation. It is affecting the nerve pathway. And I think when you get to Mikhail, you'll hear uh, a lot more details on the molecular side of it. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, that was helpful uh, for the background, the tech stuff. So, so I look at ultrasound as having a lot of interesting and cool opportunities, right? I mean, in my lab, uh, and, and this paper, it'll come out hopefully soon, um, you know, we try to activate myelinated nerves. And, and also, you know, Mikhail knows we've tried to activate uh, cells in the brain. And when we try to get distinct action potentials, and this is what Chris was alluding to earlier, um, it's hard to get like really, you know, concrete action potentials that we've tried. I'm not saying it's not possible, but in our lab with nerves and cells, neurons in the brain. Um, but it doesn't mean that the cell itself isn't being de- depolarized in some way. And I think we're all kind of on, on the side of believing that's a mechanical mechanism. Um, but you could also imagine different parts of the cells, right? Um, one thing that Chris and I have talked back and forth about is what about the terminals, right? The cell, the neural, the axon terminals, um, you know, you could have calcium influx, you could have um, different, um, you know, mechanical perturbation, right, of ion flow, and you could release neurotransmitters, and that could still have a prominent effect. We don't know all the details, but that could be possible. But you could take it one step further. You know, even beyond neuromodulation, there's been, you know, decades of research, people working on non-neural cells, right? Like chronocytes, stem cells, uh, you know, all sorts of cells. 
And they've been doing ultrasound of those cellular membranes and having signal cascading pathways, you know, modulated. Um, and parameters that they're using in those studies um, quite surprisingly also overlap with the parameters that we've been seeing in the neural space, right? So you put those together. I mean, there's just a host of opportunities to modulate neural and non-neural cells, even if it's not action potentials, which, you know, we're still waiting to see. I, I think, you know, modulation, perturbation, you know, uh, of depolarization or hyperpolarization could be the way. And the other part about temperature, um, I'm not ruling that out. Uh, of course, we don't want to go to the ablative ranges and, and start burning tissue. Um, but we are finding that if you do increase thermal, even a small amount, you can inhibit cells. Uh, we're showing that in nerves. And, and also you could you know do it in uh, brain cells. Um, but then you know there are questions of how long you could do this for safely and robustly. Um, now you start to get into some concerns of thermal effects, uh, which is always you know something you have to be for safety perspective. Uh, but there's potential there because electrical can't inhibit easily. So this provides a tool for suppression of activity, which would be amazing, but within a safe context would have to be demonstrated, right? So th that's how I view, you know, the different levels more on a systemic or a systems level. But M Mikhail knows much more about the molecular side there. He could jump into that. And you were actually referring to um, the thermal effects or using ultrasound to mechanically modulate the mechanical function or the mechanosensitive ion channels that Chris was alluding to. And then the thermal effects are, again, using ultrasound to change the, the micro temperature around the cells to ultimately get the cells to respond to heat. As we know that there are many other kind of molecular correlates and proteins that actually respond to both. And one of the ways in which the heart actually responds to a chest thump if somebody is actually, or a defibrillator, it's because of the mechanosensitive ion channels, right? So, and that's what initiates your, your cardiac uh, action potential back again. Uh, so, Mikhail, over to you. Uh, what, what exactly is the, is the molecular reason uh, that we think <laughs> ultrasound potentially modulates? Yeah. Well, the easy yeah. question for you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for thanks for building me up. Uh, you know, I, I I actually I think there's still a lot um, to learn. I, I don't think we have all the answers. At least I personally definitely don't have all the answers. Um, I think one of the um, things about ultrasound that makes it both uh, exciting but also challenging is that there's such a huge parameter space uh, over which ultrasound does vastly different things. Like you know, there are four key parameters: the frequency of the ultrasound, the amplitude of the ultrasound the pulse duration, and the duty cycle, which determines how much energy you're putting into the system, where depending on those parameters, you could be in the mechanical regime where you're pushing on stuff, you could be in the thermal regime where you're depositing energy and heating things up, and you can be in the cavitation regime where you have bubbles forming, expanding, and contracting and doing stuff. And um, the um, parameters that people use for focused ultrasound uh, neuromodulation are kind of like in between the extremes of that parameter space. So that leaves a lot of room for argument about, you know, how exactly is it working? Like even forget the molecules, like at the biophysical level, is it heating? Is it cavitation? Is it me mechanical, you know, acoustic radiation force? So um, there's a lot of kind of basic biophysics there. Um, I can tell you from our own work uh, that we did on, on cultured uh, cortical neurons. So this actually just came out today in Nature Communications. Um, and we, um, you know, examine. We said, well, let's take neurons. There's no like sensory confounds. We can exactly control what the ultrasound field looks like. These neurons are cultured on an acoustically transparent 
substrate so we don't have sound waves like bouncing around off of the material that they're growing on and studied it. And from our work, under the t- type of typical conditions that people use um, in for CNS neuromodulation, ultrasound does in fact excite neurons. So that was good to see. Uh, it kind of helps overcome some of the skepticism about does it actually do anything. Um, it's not thermal. The temperature increases are very, very small. Um, we don't see any evidence of cavitation uh, playing a role in there, although it's very hard to rule it out uh, completely. Uh, and instead, it seems to be a mechanical pushing force uh, phenomenon um, on the neurons, which then, as Chris um, said, leads to the opening of specific mechanosensitive ion channels that are responding to the mechanical stress that the ultrasound is applying that then let in calcium into the neurons. And then calcium accumulation, there's a, a kind of gradual accumulation of calcium because it's not enough just right right away to, 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 um, to activate. Then leads to, in, in our experiments, activation of calcium-dependent sodium channels that then let in sodium and then depolarize the cell and trigger action potential. So it does eventually lead to, to action potential generation. So at least in mouse cortical neurons that are cultured, that seems to be the mechanism. And of course, there's still a ton of open questions about what, you know, what happens in other neurons that are located elsewhere in the brain, what happens in peripheral uh, cells. And, you know, Chris and, and his team have done a lot of great work to answer that. But that's kind of the, the current mental picture um, that, that we have for how it works. With all that kind of real good technical information, just to bring it up higher level, right? I mean, if you think of trying to fix a car, right? And, you know, you have your, your tire pressure gauges going off, and you have the little sensor in your tire, which is converting air pressure into an electrical signal, versus all the wires going through, going to your indicator light and telling you something's going off, right? You know, these electrical implants, have been, we've been putting them on the wire, right? We've been, we've been stimulating the, the, in the middle of the communication between the sensor and, and the, in the car's brain, where you can see what's going on. And these ion channels that Mikhail's talking about, these are in the sensor part, right? These are around the air indicator. Right, these calcium channels are next to other things like glucose sensing ion channels, right? And they're part of the sensing mechanism. So we're doing something different with ultrasound, but it's a very interesting part <clears throat> of of the of the system, right? Because I think you're going to have a hard time fixing your air pressure indicator if your sensor is broken without actually changing. I don't know enough about cars to agree or disagree, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> I, I just take my car to the dealership, so I'm going to ask my. <laughs> Our dealership next time when I'm there about this analogy. I, I, I wish there were a, neur- a neuron dealership where you can just... <laughs> a neuron dealership, yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a goofy, simple analogy, but just to show how it's, you know, it's just different, right? We just need You to went to an engineering undergrad school, so we trust you entirely on your automobile engineering expertise, <laughs> and therefore your interpretation and analogy then, then I got... of the phenomenon of how... But then I got my uh, PhD in engineering from med school, so I totally ruined it. <laughs> but, but he, but he went to Johns Hopkins, right? You went to Johns Hopkins, so you know we'll give you a pass there. <laughs> I was a great med school, yeah. still in med school. I, took, I, I enjoyed it immensely. Anyone listening to Johns Hopkins? <laughs> the question is, can you change the oil in my car for me? That would be greatly appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> but I, Mikhail, I think just before we move on to some of the more specific work that that uh, Chris and Hubert are doing, I know you've you, you've been using ultrasound in applications outside of healthcare. 
or, or specific. Can you tell us about that before we, we go into more automotive detailed analogies? <laughs> uh, sure. Well, I mean, we, we, we use ultrasound for a lot. Like our, our lab is basically the, the core um, mission is to connect sound waves to the function of specific cells deep inside the body, whether those cells are neurons or their immune cells or their bacteria in our guts. And we want to both image what those cells are doing and where they are uh, doing it and uh, to control their function. So uh, it's a really, you know, really big area. And some of the stuff we're talking about here with mechanical um, actuation, you know, applies to neurons, applies to some of these other cell types, but we're taking advantage of all the other regimes, the thermal regime for temperature-based actuation of cells and the kind of ping regime, which is just for imaging, where we can visualize gene expression, enzyme activity, and all this, you know, kind of stuff that previously people couldn't see uh, at depth uh, there. So, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about there, but that probably would be a separate podcast. But it's cool though, right? Because you can only do so much with the natural expression of these proteins that ultrasound is affecting. And Mikhail is going in and learning as much as he can about that to then engineer uh-huh something new right where, where you know a little more about how yeah, things personally for me i think one of the most widely known applications from from your lab michael is really the use of kind of gas particles and and using ultrasound to detect spills uh, especially kind of large-scale spills in the environment etc which i think has a wonderful application uh, in the in the type of world that we find ourselves in from uh, all the time with the whole climate change, but also in the spills that actually occur um, uh, across the world. I, I wish I could take credit. I wish I could take credit for that, but I, I, I don't think we our lab did, did anything with, with like environmental spills. I know, but, but you actually did a lot of work or you published a few papers with gas particles and, and all of those in that space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too. So we work with, yeah, yeah, we work with gas vesicle proteins, but I, I, don't, I don't want to take credit for billions of years of evolution uh, which naturally uh, produced those proteins. It's like, it's like the GFP developers um, taking credit for the you know jellyfish uh, evolving the protein. I think for, for us, it's more that you know we took this beautiful, unique class of proteins, these air-filled nanostructures called gas vesicles, and we're completely misusing them uh, for purposes that are different from what nature intended. So just, just like you know it happened with GFP, and we're trying to do the same for ultrasound as GFP did for optics. And GFP got the Nobel Prize, right? So, um, you know, uh, <laughs> so there's a Oops. analogy pathway. <laughs> right. Well, that's, yeah, that's an out of reach dream, I, I would say. We hope you are enjoying the episode. And we wanted to remind you that while scraps will always remain free, production of scraps is not. No donation is small. We do, of course, welcome larger sums. But we know not everyone has a large amount to donate. So we have set up a donor box link to welcome donations for as little as $5 per month or in a currency of your choice. And you can sign up on our website www.scrapspodcast.com forward slash donate. We also want to give a shout out to our current sponsors, Cortec Neuro and Certec Medical, without whose help we would not be able to foot the entirety of the production costs to bring the series to you. And remember to sign up for our newsletter. And if you like our content or want us to improve our content, provide your feedback via email at scrapspodcast at gmail.com. 
or send them as an audio to us via email as well. Our email is scrapspodcast at gmail.com. But coming back to the to the neuromodulation approach, I think one of the things that you've probably kind of tested in some of your your research work really is the ability of ultrasound to turn on and off neural signals in the brain, potentially do that non-invasively. Uh, is that the part of the work that we just described that was just published in Nature Communications? But I, I think there are multiple other so pieces done, of work. So that, that was space. done in neurons uh, in culture. And one of the reasons we did that is because we found it very hard uh, to study um, the mechanisms of, of neuromodulation with ultrasound in vivo. Um, so, you know, what, one of the ways kind of Hubert and I got to know each other uh, is that, you know, both our labs were trying to study, you know, how, what, are the, what are the mechanisms uh, in vivo in um, mice and in guinea pigs uh, by which ultrasound stimulates neurons. And what we found in our lab, so, you know, the advantage of mice is that you have all these beautiful genetic tools at your disposal. So we had mice that were expressing um, a fluorescent calcium reporter throughout their cortex so that we could optically image the excitation of neurons in the cortex while applying ultrasound. And we thought, all right, we're going to apply the ultrasound and we're going to see this hot spot of excitation right in the cortex it's going to be a great paper. It's going to be very easy layup. Just like, you know, do it and publish. Now, when we did that, it turned out instead of seeing activation, using parameters that are commonly used in literature, instead of seeing activation at the focal spot of the ultrasound, we saw activation of the auditory cortex in these animals. And we're like, wait a minute. Like, what's going on here, right? Ultrasound is supposed to be inaudible. Right? That's why we call it ultrasound. We can't hear it. And, you know, it was way, way outside the normal audible range of mice. So, so what's going on there? And after extensive study in our lab and uh, in Hubert's lab and now other labs um, around the world, you know, it, it turns out that the ultrasound that, that we put in is getting converted in addition to kind of that fundamental ultrasound frequency into additional mechanical modes that, for example, have shear wave propagation through the skull of the animals that leads to auditory excitation. So instead of discovering in vivo what is the mechanism of ultrasound, we discovered that in addition to whatever direct excitation ultrasound does, it causes these auditory um, side effects, and you know now it appears potentially other sensory side effects, and um, so and that's not a deal breaker. Um, you know every 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 neuromodulation technology does that to some extent, right? TMS, you can you know you can hear and feel um, as it's happening, so it's not a deal breaker, but it does make it challenging to study mechanisms in vivo because you have to really really figure out how to control for and exclude these indirect effects. Uh, and zero in um, just on the direct effects. So that, which is why, like for studying the molecular mechanisms, we went to this very clean preparation of neurons growing in a dish that have no auditory system um, to worry about. So we can really dissect things in, in detail and with confidence. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say to add to that, um, you know, nicely said. There's also you can imagine the skin. There's the skull. There's vibrations. So you have auditory inputs, you got somatosensory inputs, you've got so many different confounding factors. And and I think the one interesting study um, was that the amount, just to give people a sense, because my lab is an auditory lab, uh, you know, we play sound stimulation, and that sound stimulation 
for our animals, maybe we do like 60 dB SPL, 70 dB SPL. Uh, when I talk, I'm probably 70, 80, so I'm pretty loud. Uh, but typical conversation, just you're having with someone, you know, it might be like 60, 70 dB SPL, comfortable, but, you know, decently audible. We were getting things, I would say, comparable to something like 120, you know, really loud, loud sounds in our in our guinea pigs. Now, of course, the guinea pigs are um, small heads, right? So there's a lot more, you know, and humans a bit different. Uh, but the thing was, you could imagine when you're presenting that kind of energy to the head, uh, you know, auditory system, then you're going to light up a ton of things, right, throughout throughout the brain. And that's the uh, further adding in this amount of sensory activation, other pathways. So you're going to have all these different things being activated. And that's a complexity that, you know, I think eventually <laughs> my lab and Mikhail's lab, we started to say, geez, this is this is very challenging. And uh, it was great to see that, you know, that study that you did in your lab, um, you know, come out, you know. Uh, in nature communication. So I, I think this is the direction to go. Start piecing away at the mechanism and build the confidence around it. Can I just follow up on one thing Hubert said I just think is very important is that the, the scale of the animal is is important here. Um, because with mice and with guinea pigs, you know, the size of the head is, is pretty close to the size of the ultrasound focus. And so, you know, things like standing waves, for example, or, you know, significant reverberations are you know, likely to play, you know, a significant role there. Um, as you get to humans, you know, we have much bigger heads uh, than a mouse, you know, those those issues would be would be different. Not to say that, that the, these kind of um, side effects would be eliminated. Uh, and in fact, people have reported, you know, humans can, can, can hear the ultrasound stimuli, but th- they seem to be, you know, not nearly as strong, right? Like having personally experienced uh, focused ultrasound applied to, to my head and, and looked at the literature. I mean, they, they, they seem to be mild but noticeable things that we just need to, to pay attention to. Great. And then that being said, on, on the peripheral side, so with um, Dino DiCarlo at UCLA, we've also put peripheral nerves in a dish and did similar experiments to Mikhail and seen ultra, ultrasound activating through calcium channels in, in a dish. Um, and we're beginning now to translate that to people. Same question Miguel brought up. Well, we have, a, you know, small organs in, in preclinical models. What happens when we do this in much larger or, organs in people? So we're through uh, three clinical trials in a couple different organs, halfway through another one. And so far, um, in organs like the spleen, the effects you see in the animal are translating. But you have to think about it differently because you can point ultrasound. You can scan it across an organ. You can design in how much of an area, how much of a volume you're stimulating. And that's all part of the translation. Um, so, so again, you learn about the mechanism, understand as much as you can, and then apply it. And I think the work Chris and his team are doing is like the most impressive out there in terms of the actual outcomes of ultrasound modulation, like the, the magnitude and cleanness um, of the effects is really remarkable. I mean, compared to you know stuff that we and others have been trying to do in, in the CNS, um, you know, it's really, really uh, advanced uh, and, um, you know, inspiring uh, that it works. And and frankly, you know, I think, there, again, you know, there's, there's some skepticism in the field. So people are like, wow, you know, it's amazing that that, that that works. But now, you know, to see it be consistently working and be published and reproduced in, in multiple labs um, is very exciting. Yeah, but... I- Sorry, just just part of that skepticism. One, one challenge we do have for anyone listening is in a lot of these PNS experiments, you're always measuring indirect markers. That's what we can do, and you need to do that. You need to translate an indirect marker. 
but having the direct nerve marker, just diagnostic equipment that can measure it. And, and what are we trying to measure is the next step. That'll really quiet skeptics, if you want to say it that way, or, or really show that we are doing neuromodulation in these clinical trials. But so if anyone's an expert out there, give us a call. And, <laughs> and, and, and you know, sorry, I know you want to ask a question, Jojo, but just on the clinical side, because this is where my world comes in, right? I'm more of a translational clinical researcher. Um, there's a lot of uh, amazing therapeutics out there that people didn't truly understand and actually doubted that it would work. For example, cochlear implants, some of the leaders in the field said that that would never work. They even wrote a, a, a summary, the leaders in the field, ENTs, I'm not going to say the names, and they said this is a great effort, but it's never going to work, right? <laughs> but cochlear implants are impressive. DBS for Parkinson's tremors, they still don't fully get how it works. And for many years, I sat down with uh, Dr. Arlene Benabid, and, you know, he, he was impressed that, you know, just kind of through his, uh, uh, you know, surgical techniques where they're trying to figure out the regions to, to lesion, that he was able to cause this, this suppression of suppre- uh, tremors, right? And still, to this day, they're trying to figure that out. So I, I think, and vagus nerve is coming to that side too, vagus nerve stimulation. But I think mechanisms are important but it shouldn't hinder the the rapid progress we can make on the clinical side. And I think they go hand, you know, parallel and skeptics are, you know, skepticism is okay. It's healthy for, for, you know, our, our research and translation. Uh, but I think we should look at it as, you know, both should be doing not that one has to precede the other to justify the other. Right. All right. I'm jumping in before either any of you guys cut me off again. <laughs> so um, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to have Chris kind of, give us an overview of the work that you do in general. And then Hubert, we'll, we'll let you go too. Um, maybe in a little less detail because I know how verbose you are. And also because we have another episode with you and encourage people to listen to the full story there and see the Jabberwock or the Dugawaki dance. Um, but then I want each of you to, to describe how you found each other because they're seemingly, um, what could have been competition as opposed to collaboration. So um, I'm going to let Chris start there. Sure. I mean, so, uh, you know, I I work um, in industrial research lab setting. So I feel that my responsibility in the world is translation. And in order to do that, um, delving into mechanism and and participating, but I'm never going to be able to do that as well as an academic lab. But taking the first bits of that and getting the human feasibility data for others to learn about to begin that translational pathway, because it's a long pathway. You know, we're going to, we discovered these things four or five years ago, people on the phone and others, and it'll be another five years maybe before a true therapy gets FDA approval, if we're lucky, right? So beginning that and learning as much as we can in the translation, because I work in an industry where we have access to clinical systems, I can put them in research mode. I can augment them and do some of the things that people are doing in academic labs with a clinical piece of equipment, um, learn, learn that it's safe, get the safety data and start that process. That's where I enjoy being and I feel like I can have the most impact. So that kind of leads to the competition part. I think this is so early on that there's, there's lots to do. There's, there's success stories for all of us here and getting to the therapy and helping people is where we should all be focusing on. No pun intended. <laughs> but both of you were actually kind of funded 
as two separate programs by by DARPA Electric's funding um, cycles, right? So, which potentially in DARPA mode, it means that we're going to throw money in two different directions and we're going to see who's going to float up to the surface so that we can pick the survivor. But that is what potentially Jojo was referring to as the competition. But you guys, uh, both of you, Chris and Hubert, have managed to convert that into a very productive collaboration. And so I think it will be very important for, for people to really appreciate that aspect as well. And why did you start doing it? And what was the motivation of converting a potential Because I got, I, I got commented on, so I'm, I'm trying not to comment on the commenting. Hubert, <laughs> <laughs> you're not that sensitive, aren't you? And yet think, here you I mean, are commenting. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it. I can't help you it, a, you know? You have a minor in irony there. <laughs> I guess I'll just say two points, and I think Hubert probably going to have many more. First of all, we haven't talked about disease applications yet. We're doing this in every organ in the body, and there's a whole other podcast on what we're doing in each organ. And in those DARPA programs, Hubert and I focused on two different organs for two very different diseases, and both of them were going well. So why wouldn't they continue to fund both of us? We can talk about more, more about that later if we have time. Second of all, I don't know that we would have got our first publications out without working together because we were able to put two very different labs together, their data into, into one paper or companion papers, and show that this, this wasn't just something in one lab, right? This is something that multiple people are working on and getting similar results. I think that was important. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I could say a few comments here. Um, I, I remember this very well because, um, you know, our group was pushing along and we were working with Medtronic at the time, uh, funded by DARPA. And of course, you know, thank you so much, you know, Doug Weber, uh, Eric Van Giesen. I mean, they were pushing uh, the efforts uh, forward for the electrics program. Um, and we didn't know about GE uh, working on this project I was very skeptical. I didn't think this was going to work. Uh, we had done our ultrasound spleen simulation in our arthritic, arthritic model, uh, chronic model. Well, it's chronic in the sense of like, you know, seven to 10 days. And we were treating arthritis in these mice. And it was just kind of weird because like, why would this really happen? I mean, the, the ideas and hypotheses were there. And we found out we did a parameter optimization study, you know, well, not, I would say optimization, but explore, exploration study. And we found certain parameters that were effective. Eric Van Giesen was like, okay, I need to pair you up and talk with Chris Puglio. It was a meeting at Colorado. And um, then he put us together and we shared notes, right? And Chris then shares his results in a different animal model, right? LPS um, uh, induced inflammation in rat. We're doing in, in, uh, uh, in mice with arthritis. And they found similar, you know, overlapping parameters that were effective. Uh, so this started to make me believe, okay, something's going on. And this is where we said, if people are going to believe us, we need to publish together, right? Uh, so that's where we we did the companion paper. And and that's kind of the history of the DARPA projects. Now, in terms of why I'm working with Chris and Mikhail, like, I'm all about, I mean, yes, I would like to, you know, be competitive and, you know, make lots of money, maybe eventually, and, and, and be a leader. Uh, but I've always found it more fun to work with people. And being open about advancing the science or the clinical application or the product. And I have to say, Mikkel and Chris are very open-minded when it comes to that. You could already tell, like us just chatting on, on this you know, podcast, that uh, they're very open to work with people and very willing to look at different sides and then approach it as a team effort. And that's the part that I'm drawn to people like that, and I hope I'm that way. But that's where I've resonated really well with these two 
uh, with both of them and then we can work together right and and so that's where i felt like it worked out even though chris is an industry i would say he's unique because he's not like really industry i kind of put him more like a researcher somehow stuck in this boundary of industry but he's managed to do very well to keep the research going it it goes back to the old ibm days right uh, which when people were or industry researchers were actually doing cool stuff and and every time you basically talk to people about engineering and and what was the heyday in engineering i think it always goes back to that period uh but coming back to the point uh, yes i think it will be an entirely separate podcast episode chris on the applications etc but if we just pick on a couple of examples or maybe more than couple of examples that you guys have worked on for ultrasound applications in the field of neuromodulation uh so mikhail kind of alluded to some of the work that he has done in terms of in vitro neuronal cultures and other things etc and and there is actually kind of separate companies at this point of time who are working on ultrasound targeting of of specific tumors and and others which will be part of a separate kind of episode um uh, from from us now um but then there the couple of examples that you folks have actually worked together so the L, the lipopolysaccharide or lps model that 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 you had used chris and the um, mice arthritis model that you had used hubert was all potentially looking at modulation of the splenic um or splenic neuromodulation to treat uh, arthritis uh, is the way the ultimate or potentially if you can think about other autoimmune but at least you were focusing on preclinical or non-clinical arthritis models to start with and then chris you also published another paper on the metabolic side where we are looking at hepatic modulation as well and then more recently with the whole covid i think both of you have started looking in fact moved away from the non-clinical or animal studies sorry i kind of bridge between the pharmaceutical and the and the device world so i always refer to animal studies as non-clinical because preclinical can mean anything but so uh, but anyway so sorry about the little tangent but you actually moved from those animal studies that you had done into actually human studies that that you've performed in the in the covid patients as well uh using ultrasound so do you want to tell us a bit more about how this area of ultrasound induced neuromodulation is actually blossoming into many different Hubert? applications across various <laughs> organs okay so i think huber i have both stimulated spleen uh i've been doing that more mechanistically in in acute models and huber's been doing it in chronic models which like you just said uh and we're working together and huber is one of those open minded people as well so it's awesome working with him Uh, but we we started working with uh Kevin Tracy and everyone at Feinstein Institute and they had a decade worth of mapping data using electrical implants piecing out the map of what those nerves going into the spleen was doing and other people have now contributed as well but you know where are the synapses with the immune cells in the spleen um how are they communicating between the nerves in the spleen we had all that data to to start to use and to apply um so uh, in that case it was kind of well known that if you activate efferent nerves in the spleen you're going to tamp down cytokines specific cytokines and now you can look at what those cytokines are and design drug like studies you know what what diseases are involved with these specific cytokines why would i want to tamp down expression of these cytokines so you can move very quickly into mechanistic ultrasound into drug like studies 
and Huber could talk about the COVID study that, that we, we helped them do, but they, they ran at University of Minnesota um, and how they applied that. Um, that's the spleen, where people think it's all efferent nerves. We'll see, but it's very efferent nerve organ, apparently. <laughs> um, we've been now applying uh, the ultrasound to areas where there are afferent nerves and sensory uh, um, uh, nerves coupled to sensory cells in gastrointestinal tract, in the liver, and they have metabolic um, jobs, responsibilities. They're sensing metabolism, sensing nutrients. We've been doing that in diabetic models, obesity models, and learning how the activity of those sensors um, is potentially, uh, uh, when you activate them, how it interacts with the disease model, and potentially maybe as part of the disease, right, where your, your brain is looking at everything that's going on in the body. These sensors are, are bringing very important information from the gut, from the liver, to the brain. The brain is then sending commands down to the rest of the organs to really uh, control the metabolic system. And since we're able to use ultrasound and pick specific locations, we can begin, begin to piece out where each of these sensory areas uh, are and how they're important to the whole system. I'll, I'll stop there. I have, I have just a quick side story about mapping the Vegas and a lot of the work that came out of the fine scene. It goes back to, I think, the second meeting of um, Elliot Crames, and it used to be called Neuromodulation Mechanism of Action, and now it's I think it's Neuromodulation of Science. It was in San Francisco, and I was at a lunch with Victor Peikoff, Chad Bouton, Daniel Chu, and I think Cameron McIntyre. We all decided that actually mapping out the fibers of the vagus nerve would be a really, really cool idea. So me being a kleptomaniac, I stole the, the cloth napkin from the restaurant. We wrote down our idea on the napkin and then had everybody sign it. So I, I think I even know where to dig that out. But that that's that's hopefully a, a small piece of why you guys have some of that mapping data. Cool. That's awesome. You should get that and put it up somewhere. That's always fun when you have those little n- napkin ideas. Jojo, let's <laughs> NFT it. Let's actually scraps NFT it. And and then we will actually kind of make sure that it can be traced back. Okay, to the let me just source. get my lipstick stain out of the napkin and then we can NFT it. Yeah, maybe I'll just add to. Uh, oh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, with, 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 with what they're getting for NFTs, you guys can then come back and fund our studies, right? I mean, come on, and sell it for like a quarter of a dollar. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, why the hell not, right? So uh, that's for sure. So Hubert, um, ultrasound yeah. and COVID. Yeah, what so did you guys that, do? That was, um, you know, interesting because, um, you know, all of us, geez, I mean, our whole world had had, had just changed, right? I mean, two thousand twenty, and uh, at that time, our our path funded by DARPA and we're still working on it is to treat rheumatoid arthritis. So we still have that pipeline going. We have some, you know, pilot clinical studies going on. But during that March, March, April time, uh, it was clear that uh, COVID was going to take over our world. And, you know, Italy was ramping up at the time, you know, in terms of dealing with the COVID surges there. Um, We started to see data coming out, right, that in COVID patients, hospitalized COVID patients, especially that they were experiencing hyperinflammation, right? And this was then being expressed in their lungs, leading to all sorts of complications. Um, and when they started to publish uh, cytokine data, but also genetic data, uh, they're showing upregulation of these different pro-inflammatory cytokines and, and pathways, right? Like uh, TNF, IL-6, uh, uh, IL-1-beta, you know, different things that Chris and myself and others, we've been tracking. And we've been seeing that when you stimulate the vagus nerve, 
uh, and or the spleen that you would see suppression of those, right? So it's almost like the counter of what they're showing in COVID-19, hospitalized COVID-19 patients. Now we had ultrasound, it's non-invasive, it has a good safety profile. So it, it made sense, why not try this out in hospitalized COVID patients? So, you know, obviously we have this collaboration with Chris, with the GE, you know, Carpe system. Uh, we, uh, my colleagues and I, Anuj Bardwash and several others, we have this company called Second Wave Systems, where we're developing wearable ultrasound devices that uh, can stimulate the spleen. And so in parallel, we made two efforts, and, and I give credit to DARPA for funding this work and also MCDC, another um, you know uh, the Department of Defense entity, and they provided funds to actually pursue clinical trials in hospitalized COVID patients. Now, the first one we got up and running was with the G-CART-based system, and I, 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 I can't really reveal too much yet, Chris, because we'll have to get approval of the publication that we're going to release that we're going to submit soon, uh, but we did a, pa- a study in, in uh, 30 patients, 15 who received standard of care and 15 patients who received standard of care plus ultrasound, daily ultrasound stimulation of the spleen uh, for up to seven days. And we, we presented this at a conference already at, at, at the, the NANS conference, uh, um, a neural uh, conference. And so there we showed that we were seeing separation between the control group and those who are getting treated with ultrasound. And there are some interesting nuggets in there that we're going to present in this publication. So that, that actually, actually supports that there may be a way that we could kind of hijack that hyperinflammation that's happening and it's sub- suppressed down enough to bring these hospitalized hyper you know inflammation patients down to a state stable level so that's where we're moving it's a pilot study early but we're now building upon that to run larger scale studies especially with with our second wave device so i have a follow-up to it's an open question to all three of you um really um but envisioning about what potentially um, the f- a future product using a wearable ultrasound might potentially look like. And I think I'm, I'm just going to ask the question in a skeptical way. It doesn't mean that I'm a skeptic uh, for that particular idea, but I think that's the way people usually perceive it, right? So normally when you're thinking about applying such um, type of non-invasive stimulation, it, it's well and good if you're applying it in a COVID patient who is probably in intensive care or a hospital because somebody else is applying that, etc. cetera. Uh, whereas if it is going to be in a patient with arthritis or if it's going to be a patient with diabetes, etc., those patients come in all different sizes and shapes. So therefore, uh, and the moment you actually move into the viscera, uh, as is the case with 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 most of these structures that you're working on, be it the liver, be it the, uh, be, be it the GI, the gastrointestinal system, or the spleen, these things kind of move all the time, depending on the posture, depending on what this person is doing, depending on, on how heavy or, 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 or how thin the person is, etc. How does one get to focus the, the ultrasound energy at a particular space uh, especially if they are planning to apply it outside the realm of that? Or are you actually assuming that the patients would potentially be getting the treatment every time when they come to the hospital? So d- d- tell us a bit more about how you're envisioning a potential product in the space or a product, assuming that there are many uh, in the space for different disease indications, and what could be the issues and how are you planning to kind of overcome in your scientific engineering brains uh, at this point. Want to get again? Well, we know that question yeah, I, wasn't directed at me, so it's got to be one of you. 
I, I have a science answer and an engineering answer. Um, in some situations, we're finding that we're learning enough about what we're doing to the nerve that we can activate the pathway and induce a response, a therapeutic response that lasts for weeks, potentially months. So now you're not taking a pill every day. You're doing something to the nerve pathway that has a longer lasting effect. We're learning a lot about that mechanism. Um, and that presents one solution to this where, where you have a long lasting therapeutic effect and people can come in to their doctor's office, some other centralized location, receive a therapy and go, for, go away for a while. And that is a scientifically plausible scenario that we're actively investigating for specific spots and specific nerve For others, you may have to simulate daily, um, and we are investigating. You have an ultrasound transducer, so it's not just the stimulus transducer, it's an imaging transducer, and we're utilizing that image to learn about where we're placing the stimulus and build in safety parameters. So you're looking at where you're firing, and you're putting in the stimulus, only when you see the target um, and have a whole bunch of ways to know what the thing is seeing using machine learning and AI and, and all the, the new type of image analysis software that we have available. And Hubert's got wearable versions of all these things you should talk about, which is another whole transducer technology based. I think Chris, you covered all of it. I mean, ours is the kind of the hardware stuff, but I mean, Mikhail, like, cause I, I branched off of uh, brain stimulation but Mikhail knows more, much more along uh, of all the different groups that are trying to work in the, the brain stem. And I, I, I think that's fascinating, too. I don't know if you want to share that. Uh, happy to. Yeah, I mean, I should say that, you know, in my lab, we, we don't make any devices. So we're completely uninnovative uh, in that regard. I, that's, that's not fair to some of the members in my lab. So sorry I said that. I retract it. But, um, you know, I, there, I think for, for, um, for CNS applications... Is that why they awarded you the Howard Hughes Fellowship? Yes, because uh, for, because, because I look no, the key to Howard Hughes enough? is you can't look like too much like an engineer. You have to look like no, don't no, please erase this. This has to. No, I'm serious. This, this could cost me my thing. But uh, anyway, Hubert just yeah. said, "Ouch!" No, you you have to be an engineer with the deep in bio. Uh, but um, the. Um, where was I going with this before you threatened my livelihood? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think um, for C for CNS applications, like the, the thing people are hoping for is that you could have this um, episodic treatment uh, that Chris was describing, where people come in periodically and you have a longer lasting effect. Um, you know, to have a therapy where you need to be continuously wearing an ultrasound transducer on your head uh, seems to me unlikely. Um, you know, I could be proven wrong about this, but I, I just don't see people, unless the benefit is enormous, kind of wanting to walk around even with a helmet um, that's doing that all the time. Uh, and then the other part of it that people work on is um, where it could be a minimally invasive implant. Um, so you're doing some kind of surgery, you may be replacing a piece of skull, um, and then you have a transducer that's in there that's that's constantly uh, applying ultrasound to certain locations. So I, I would I, I would think you know in the future you're going to have either the episodic treatment paradigm or some kind of minimally invasive implant. Yeah, and, and that's a good point, too, because um, with the skull, um, you know, it does add some complexities to how large this this device may have to be to be able to uh, go through the skull. So the minimally invasive, you know, is a nice thought because you could, you know, get it to the skull to the dura level 
and and that could you know buy you some some uh, um, flexibility there. Um, and and the periphery, the nice thing about stimulating is obviously for us, we're trying to get the spleen so the ribs are in the way. So a lot of what we're trying to develop are low cost devices. Um, you know, we're talking about a few thousand dollars where um, there's enough smarts, you know, smart aspects in it that you could bypass and get your beam between the ribs. Um, and then also obviously track the motion of the spleen or the organ. So that's to the level of, you know, we're trying to create some sophisticated low cost ways to do that. Um, but if you don't go where the ribs are and you kind of go under the ribs or other parts of your body, um, I think there's further opportunity where, you know, the, the device can get a, a bit simpler and, and, you know, you're not trying to kind of bypass or over. It was a comment that Mikel made earlier about, you know, uh, you know, having enough ability to kind of get through that, that skull. Um, uh, but I think there, yeah, maybe for body worn devices, you could imagine um, episodic, you know, in clinic but a wearable at-home device as well, assuming that it's smart enough and low-cost enough that can handle, uh, it's with the safety things in place uh, with targeting your your your, your region. Okay. I just want to add one thing to this um, that I think is going to be an important future um, direction. And, you know, I'm very biased um, in, in saying this, but, you know, I think most of what we talked about today is um, just using ultrasound by itself. Um, to do stuff. And this is similar to, you know, with light, if all you had was the light and you didn't have any kind of molecules that you're adding in for photodynamic therapy or optogenetic um, uh, approaches, um, you would be quite limited, right? Light can do some stuff, you know, we showed it can, it can change capacitance uh, of, of uh, membranes and so on. Uh, but if you have the molecular component in there, you can do a lot more and that can greatly extend the type of effects you can have and their duration uh, and so on. And so there's a whole huge field now of people intersecting what ultrasound uh, can do with kind of more chemical and biological and viral and cellular approaches where the ultrasound can give you the spatial um, tagging where you say, this is the place where I want to do something. But then what happens at that location can be much more molecular. So, for example, opening the blood-brain barrier to introduce gene delivery to a certain location that can have a very long-lasting um, effect. Or using ultrasound to activate a gene expression pattern that can then have a longer-lasting effect and give you many more parameters for the kind of response that you can have. Or sonogenetics, where you have specific cells that are overexpressing some of these mechanosensitive ion channels that are then preferentially responding to ultrasound at parameters that don't excite background tissue. So all of those things is like another dimension here that I think is important for listeners to be aware of that it's that there's active work happening in this area. And pretty much like a more advanced sonosensitizer, sonosensitizer uh, that's actually been applied in, in clinical yeah, settings, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, is basically what a sonosensitizer that yeah. actually works by understandable mechanisms uh, will hopefully be developed. And then probably simplify the machine you need to have the effect in the end, make it cheaper and easier to use. So I think I can sum up this whole session in just just a couple of things. Um, I, I think we, I like the term sonogenetics, and I think that that's, I hereby dub thee the sonogenetic triumvirate. And um, I think we have Eric Van Giesen to, to thank for bringing you all together. Forcing you all together, maybe even if I know Eric D as well D as Doug I do. We Doug Weber, you know, we Doug have Weber, Doug 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 Weber, Weber. And, yeah, and, Huber, yeah. and, and Hubert's dad. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, I have to tell this story now. Oh, uh, yeah. I was a bit embarrassed, right? Because 
Um, I, I go visit Mikhail, you know, a few times when I when I go to California because I'm from Southern California area, and um, I had to get I had to get to Caltech to see him, and I, I didn't know how to get there. I don't have a car, so. <laughs> I had to have my dad drop me off at, 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 at Mikhail's lab. So I'm pulling up, you know, it's, it reminds me of like when I was in elementary, you know, my dad's in the front seat and I'm in the back seat, you know, and then I come out and I'm opening the door and I'm coming. Yeah. And it's like, how did you get here? Oh, my dad dropped me off. You know, here, here I'm a professor coming to Caltech to see this prominent, you know, faculty and my dad's dropped me off. Like I'm going to, <laughs> I just thought in there, like literally, your dad brought us together. I mean, like that's the yeah, yeah, that's literally yeah. It, it did, yeah. That's awesome. Just next time, they can drop you off around the corner. I mean, that's <laughs> you've got that pro move. Come on, you should know better. Please, if, if my parents live nearby, they'd be driving me all the time. There's nothing, <laughs> nothing better than having your mom or dad drop you off somewhere. But by the way, I love you, you Dad. You haven't seen my you know, I just want to say that. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Lamb. Yeah, I love you, Dad. Just so don't don't when you listen to this, it's not I'm, I'm not embarrassed of you. <laughs> um, my one last closing bit of advice is Hubert. If you're going to be working at all on on COVID, um, I, I might suggest the rethinking of the name Second Wave. I know. I know. Well, so you know, it, it, it was such an interesting thing because the first wave was happening right in Italy, and here we are convincing the funders. You know, they're like, "Who are you? We're second wave," and they're like, "Wait, what? That's what we're trying to treat as the second wave of COVID." So it was a very odd scenario. But then it went to third wave, fourth wave, and fifth wave. So you know, people forgot about us and the name second wave. So. <laughs> Just not tidal wave, okay? That's fine. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so I just want to just say one thing about the sonogenetic term, just for, for us internally. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, that refers to something very specific right now in the field. That's okay. when, when you're purposely genetically modifying cells to respond to ultrasound. And it was coined by Shrek Chalasani at the uh, Salk uh, Institute. I just want to give... Okay, Shrek Chalasani, not yeah, Shrek, the ogre. Okay, got it. Okay. Not Shrek. I, I, <laughs> And Arun and I are, are intimately familiar with cease and desist orders for words like electroceuticals. Who knew? Yeah. And I'm so glad we were. So yeah, I don't think that I don't think there's any legal thing here. But I, I don't think like most of what we talked about today is not on a show. All right. Well, thank you all. Thank you all for your time. We really appreciate it. It's always entertaining and fun and informative to talk to you guys. That yeah, was fun. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for doing yeah, that. Thank you for having us. We hope you got a good glimpse of what ultrasound can do to modulate nerves and all the various steps that is being taken to prove the naysayers in this area. What is more refreshing to Jojo and I is the fact that the investigators themselves are the worst critics and doubters of the area. They are not oblivious to all the criticisms levied on the ultrasound neuromodulation and are constantly and have worked through every experiment with a goal to prove to themselves and the world that ultrasound can be used to modulate nerves. What ultrasound also promises to think carefully about is how modulation using ultrasound doesn't necessarily require action potential generation, much like what electrical stimulation does, and how this understanding is also growing as we discussed. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure that you go and check out all the other episodes from our archives, especially the one that involves Hubert Lim. 
and do one of the three things for us or maybe all of them why not right sign up to our newsletter link is in the episode description second ensure that you share this episode with everyone on your social network via linkedin or twitter tagging us on linkedin we are scraps and on twitter we are podcast scraps that's scraps with a k and the word sparks spelled backwards and we are very much dependent on donations to keep the content coming visit scrapspodcast.com forward slash donate for further information mr swaminathan tirunyala samandam is a sound engineer and he performed all the mixing mastering and sound design for this episode that's it for now thank you so much bye until next time you've been listening to scraps by electronic medicines we want to thank our donors certech medical and cortech neuro without whose help the production of these episodes would not be possible special thanks to mr swaminathan tirunyana sambandham who performed sound design and also performed the mixing and the mastering of the episode the script was written and edited by arun shridhar and jojo blad the transcript for this episode is available at our website scrapspodcast.com the interviews and the content of the episode are property of scraps and should be reproduced only with permission from arun or jojo and if you liked our work you can help us bring more of such episodes by donating as little as $5 once or every month and if you think about it it is as small as buying a cup of coffee at starbucks please visit scrapspodcast.com/donate to do this